Hey, this is Mike C. of The Natural Man Podcast. I gotta get this out of the way right off the top. The Natural Man Podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only and should not be constituted as medical advice or diagnosis of any kind or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man Podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of the Natural Man Podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the natural man podcast that's it here we go this is the natural man podcast with mike c welcome to the natural man podcast this is an exploration into health wellness and discovering new ways to improve one's vitality i am your host mike c thanks for joining us for this episode Today, we have a guest who's been in practice for 18 years. She specializes in environmental medicine, Lyme disease, and chronic infections. Um, She has her own practice in Burlington, Ontario, Canada. Uh, For those of you not familiar, that's in the Toronto area. Her name is Dr. Carissa Doherty. She's been in naturopathic medicine now uh, in her own practice. And we're really happy to have her on today. Dr. Doherty, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Nice to see you again. Yeah. Great to see you. Um, tell me a little bit about your practice. Uh, what, what areas of, of medicine, naturopathic medicine, um, are you sort of working in? I know I talked about a little bit in the introduction there, but, uh, give me a little more information on, on the scope of your practice. Sure. I do have a general practice, so I do see infants, I see uh, women who are pregnant, uh, I see people of all ages, um, and I've had a general practice for a long time, Um, and I I have wound up kind of specializing uh, in the last couple of years um, in environmental medicine and chronic infections, Lyme disease included, Um, so it's kind of nice because I see a little bit of everything, but I do like those specialty cases, Um, so in my practice, there's three naturopaths, my sister, Sonia Doherty, and our colleague, uh, Danielle O'Connor, and myself. And so we kind of like the, the tough cases. We like to see things that are a little bit harder to, to figure out. But I do have a base. I do have a general practice. I do see, you know, general health. Um, and I like, I like that. It keeps it busy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell me a little bit about environmental medicine, because I don't know if everybody uh, in our audience would necessarily know uh, what that is. And I, I, I have a pretty good idea myself, but expand on that a little bit. What does that involve? Sure. I mean, we do live in the age of toxicity. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's sad. It's sort of a, a downer topic, but because, um, because toxicity is prevalent in, in our world, no matter where you live, um, we do wind up finding that we do have to actually treat toxicity in our general practice. So we live in a, we live in an in, in industrial area. Uh, we live in a fairly toxic area in Southern Ontario. It's not actually that, um, there's not that many people necessarily. It's a city, um, but we live in a special area where we get, um, 
uh, air pollution from the U.S. and from different areas in Canada. And in my area, we live sort of in an escarpment area where it's kept all kind of in 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 play. So even our general practice does have toxicity uh, impact in the in the system. But I mean, generally there are chemicals that are persistent or non-persistent in the body, things that we're, our body is good at uh, eliminating and things that our body is not so good at eliminating. Um, and we do find that it has a part to play in health. So uh, we're, we're naturally designed to get rid of things, but over time, things can accumulate in the system and our defense mechanisms for eliminating it can get worn down and tired. And we can pass that fatigue on to our offspring. So we can have genetic predispositions, we can have an overload of toxicity, um, and we can just sort of, you know, lose the nutrients on how we how we can can get that stuff out of the system. So there there can be symptoms of toxicity, but generally there's exposure for everyone, unfortunately. So tell me a little bit about how you specifically tackle this. You come in, you know, you have a, a patient come in complaining of a set of symptoms. Um, are there specific symptoms that are related to specific toxins, and are they different for different people? Um, how do you sort of fleece through that? Sometimes we'll generally categorize symptoms as toxicity symptoms, and we'll start there. Um, sometimes what we'll do is when we collect information on an intake on a timeline, you know, how was your childhood? How was your, your young adult uh, life? Um, you can tell that there's been a toxic incident because after a certain time period, the person is not well. So you can see it very easily in a timeline, a health timeline. Um, but sometimes if we if we group symptoms into clusters, with the nice thing with naturopathic medicine is I can I I'm not supposed to do harm. So there's a lot of safety in my my field, which is great. So if we see symptoms that are toxicity based, we will sometimes apply some detoxification strategies. And one of the nice things to tell is if the person feels better on detoxification strategies. Typically, that means they were exposed. We don't necessarily have to know exactly what the exposure is in a general practice space, um, because if, if people don't want to spend tons and tons of money on testing, we can make some assumptions. And if their overall health is better when we're targeting toxicity, that, that also means that the assumption is they've, they've been exposed, but we're treating them. So we kind of do it a, different, a couple different ways. We, we strategize, but we also treat safely, knowing that we can kind of poke around and support um, and if we get huge outcome, we know that, that that's probably the case. What sort of detoxification strategies do you implement with your patients? Yep. I mean, there's major detoxification systems. So the digestive system is the way you get stuff out of the body. That's the primary guy. So the other detoxification systems like the lungs and the skins and the, 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 the skin and the kidney, those are ways to get rid of things out of the body. But if we do see something like a constipation case, we know physically that person can't get stuff out of the tube. So, you know, even just taking a case and saying your, your, your standard detoxification pathways, the, the ways out of the body are not working, that, that helps us start uh, on a system. So making sure the exits are open is the first piece. Making sure that the nutrients are there so that the body can get uh, things that are stuck in the tissue out of the system is part of the play. Um, so oftentimes we just go step by step sort of from the outside in and make sure that the systems are competent. Um, but, you know, the liver is kind of the guy for detoxification pathway. It's the one that will, will detoxify nutrients that, that can be slightly uh, toxic to non-toxic. So if the liver isn't working as well as it should, then you're going to load things in and hold them in your tissue because your, your, your main factory to uh, detoxify nutrients is not working as well. So the liver is a, the biggest organ in the body. And if it's not working as well as it should, then you're going to hold things in. Right. And and so give me some examples of what 
can detoxify the liver. I've heard different strategies from different functional medicine docs over the years. Um, how do you target the liver? Sure. So in the liver, so like it's a big, it's a big organ system. It's located, you know, in the middle of the body, but it, it's huge. Um, but the liver actually has is involved with detoxification. But every cell in the liver is on its own. So a, a hepatocyte. It takes care of phase one and phase detoxification inside itself. So it's like a big factory, but it's individual units that work together. So there's phase one and phase two detoxification pathways and everything, hormones, food, toxicants, they all have to be activated in phase one so that the body can can allow things to work. And then they have to be deactivated by phase two. So phase one and phase two are, there's tons of phase one and phase two cofactors, and there's also tons of... Uh, so the phase one is, um, there's many, many different types of phase ones, but there's three main jobs with phase one detoxification pathway and seven main jobs with phase two detoxification pathway. So a lot of times what we do is we would support with vitamins and minerals that are very general and herbs that are very general for phase one and phase two and just see how a person does. So if a person needs those nutrients and needs that general guideline for, hey, could you make phase one work? At the same time, phase two is working and make it very smooth um, and there's a response. Then we dig a little deeper into, well, what specific phase one is needed or what specific phase two is working or not working. And un unfortunately, sometimes it's uh, data from lab work or it's data from response or it's genetic information that tells us, hey, your phase two doesn't work well specifically in the glutathione you know, pathway because you weren't born with that genetic uh, strength. So you know, there's not perfect information on how to do it, but it winds up being a case of looking at the system, looking at the symptoms, and then a little bit of trial and error. Can you see things on a, like a, a com, like a, a, a typical liver lab panel? You mentioned, you mentioned, you know, lab works and diagnostics there. Um, you know, does a person whose liver is toxic is it going to show elevated liver enzymes like we would see in a typical lab report, or is that not really a helpful standard? It would, yeah, it would be great if it was, uh, because that would really help, my, help me do my job a lot better. But what happens with liver enzymes is the liver will will um, the enzymes will be elevated for a very short period of time when the body is not happy, and then once the body uh, doesn't change its 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 system, the liver enzymes will go down after a couple weeks. So if you're consistently exposed to something or something is stuck in your system, the liver enzymes won't stay elevated, they'll come back to normal. So sometimes what you'll see in an older population, so like 30 to 55 and older, is that there will be some fatty liver. Uh, so the liver will become inflamed and fatty infiltrate will come in and the person will be diagnosed with fatty liver, even if there's no alcohol involved and even if there's no weight issues. And so that's one way the liver shows its irritation is it, it kind of swells up and it, it, it protects itself with fat. But uh, we sometimes use um, some labs like low GGT is an enzyme. So high GGT is a liver enzyme that will show irritation. Sometimes low GGT will tell us that indirectly glutathione is low. So glutathione is phase two detoxification pathway. And glutathione of all the detoxification pathways is sort of the boss. If you have low glutathione status, then your liver will bottleneck and you can't clear things like environmental toxins, hormones, and infection, and metals and microbes. So it's a, it's a big guy. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned glutathione, just for our, our listeners. Um, tell me what that is exactly. 
So glutathione is an antioxidant. Our bodies are supposed to make glutathione. It's an intracellular, inside the cell antioxidant. It cleans up debris, inflammation inside the cell. Um, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of research articles on glutathione. Uh, we know that the more glutathione you have and you make, the more you clear up your inflammatory load. But glutathione is also involved with putting iron inside the red blood cells. And good glutathione status is, is oftentimes related to good overall health. We also need glutathione for immune system status. So low glutathione will put us at risk for infection or autoimmune diseases or, or sort of bad things like cancer. Is, uh, is glutathione something you can take as a supplement? I've seen supplements for it. I've seen liposomal glutathione. What's your take on supplementation? It seems somewhat controversial. There's, there's a, a segment of practitioners that say it doesn't really help, and then there's a segment that say it does. What's your experience using? Do you use supplemental? And if so, what's your take on it? We do. So we, we do use glutathione. It's actually not our first, uh, our first thought to do. So what we, t what we like to do is allow your body to make more glutathione. So we sometimes apply the cofactors so that your tissue makes more glutathione instead of giving it manually. But we have seen people who respond to glutathione. So if we are not sure if you're low or, or if you need it or don't need it, sometimes we just will give it to you. And if people are what we call responders, they like it. It gives them more energy. It changes lab values. It changes hormone regulation. Uh, you know, they, they found it useful. Then we know they're glutathione responders. We may continue supplementation, but we find what's kind of better for the patient is that if we can trigger their body to make more. So for example, glutathione is made through um, the combination of different amino acids, cysteine, glycine, glutamate, and magnesium. And so we find sometimes if we allow the cofactors to be put into play, we'll see the body make more glutathione or more response that way so that the, all the tissues will make glutathione instead of us hand-feeding individual tissues at a very low dose for supplementation. What are some of the steps people can take if they suspect they're walking around with a big toxic load just on their own? Um, you know, there's, there's toxicity in city tap water, um, you know, there's there's toxicity in carpets and different things that we don't think of in, in our homes. Um, what sort of strategies do you share with your patients to sort of be proactive just on the home front to reduce the toxic burden? Sure. So I think the two ideas of toxicity would be persistent and non-persistent. So the persistent toxins are the ones that stick in your body and they're hard to get rid of. They, they take a lot of work. And the non-persistent toxins are the ones that your body does a pretty good job at eliminating. So it's actually, the research shows that it's actually the non-persistent, wait, I always get them, I'm dyslexic, I always get them mixed up. The non-persistent <laughs> toxins, the ones that you can eliminate fairly decently, um, are actually the problem. So the things you have control over do make a big impact. If you do put less toxins into your actual body, the things you have control over, your air, your drinking water, your use of, of things you put on your body or in your body, if you clean those up a little bit, they have a huge impact on health. Yes, they do. Yeah, I, I heard one practitioner say that if you can't eat it, don't put it on your body. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, I always imagine a lot of the things we have access to are like food. You know, if I left my food on the countertop, it would rot and not, not do well for a couple days. So things that are stable or shelf-stable... Uh, you, you got to figure out why they're shelf stable. And if the, the things that allow you to have, you know, 
something that's shelf stable, that's sort of a food or a, or a, something you put on your body or in your body, if you understand why it's shelf stable, then your body can break it down. Great. If you don't understand why it's shelf stable, consider an alternative that you know can break down in your body. Right. Yeah. Do you ever use liver extract? I see that in stores and, and when I'm shopping online and there's some people that, that profess that that helps support the liver. Any truth to that? Probably. I don't, I don't tend to use it. I'm a bit of a control freak. So if I don't know, you know, cause the liver is an organ system that will, that will house all the toxins in the body, not all, but it will definitely hold everything in play until it's ready to process it. So if I don't know where that liver is, has been or what it's been exposed to, then you can be giving someone toxicants as well as giving them the power to detoxify them at the same time. So I don't tend to, um, I like to give the cofactors so that the, or herbs that will trigger the body to make glutathione so that the, the person can do it on its own. We're, we're kind of big in this practice of giving you the stepping stones and then kind of teaching you how to do it. And then you do it on your own. Any dietary measures that support liver function that sure. so you subscribe to? Yeah. I mean, specifically glutathione, there's seven, hopefully I remember them, seven herbs that tell the body to, if they can, if they have the cofactors, they have all the building blocks, could you make glutathione? So those herbs or, or, or you know, spices would be ginkgo, ginseng, green tea, rosemary, rooibos, Always forget the two, the other two. <laughs> I'll I'll come back to them. Anyway, milk thistle. Okay. Oh, one last one. So I'll I'll, I'll remember and I'll come back to you. But those are you know teas or substances we have read we have access to, and those nutrients will tell the body to make glutathione. So, um, milk thistle. Um, I've actually used that in the past, and um, I'll actually feel something in my liver after I take it for a few days. Yeah. What do you think that is? Is that is that I'm not turning I'm not trying to turn this into a consultation. Um, <laughs> but I mean, is that just in my head or do you think the milk thistle is actually doing something? What is its sort of mechanism of action on the liver? It tells the body to make more glutathione. So I, I'm a glutathione responder. So I'm one of those people that took glutathione and loved it. I think, you know, I, I took it uh yeah, maybe for the, for the first time, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And I felt fantastic. I felt like the birds were singing and the air was fresher. And I think I lost 10 yeah. pounds that month. I mean, I loved glutathione. Uh, so I feel like I responded to it. I feel like, and then I did my genetics. So I, I looked at my genes and, and said, you know, do I have the genetic predisposition to make glutathione? or not. And I don't, I actually don't have the genetic, you know, if I look at my gene potential, it, it looks like my ability to make glutathione is not so good. And I did pass that lovingly along to my kids. So glutathione is a part of sort of our core health where we would tell, uh, we would, we would kind of push my kids to, to have more glutathione uh, supportive nutrients, because I do think that, yes, I think I'm a responder and I don't think I make enough of it on my own. So do you, is there any, is there any, um, safety issue with taking glutathione supplementation long term if somebody is a responder and they find that they're doing much better on it so we've we've we do have a more complicated practice uh we do have lots of people that are sick uh in varying stages of, of not not feeling well um so we have seen reactions on everything i've seen i've seen very significant reactions on very safe safe supplements so mm. there's no label on glutathione for for adverse reactions uh it's sold it's sold, you know, in a health, in a grocery store, in a health food store, in a supplement store. So generally it's recognized as safe. It's called grass. 
generally recognized as safe. Right. But I've seen reactions on everything. So I think you have to, you know, use your brain. And if you start something and feel unwell, I would say you stop. But yes, generally glutathione is considered safe for long-term use. Do you have any... Um... Do you have any issues come up where there's heavy detox reactions yeah. with some of your patients when you're trying to detoxify? And if so, talk about that. Take me through that. Sure. I think a lot of the things we do see is aggressive detox reactions because uh, that's it's good data for us. So when we, when we see reactions in our patient base, we're actually quite happy um, to the point where you know, we didn't train our staff to say it, but when we would get calls and we would get aggra aggravations to a protocol, uh, my sister and our colleague, we would sort of like out loud ex exclaim like, that's great. They're, that's great. That's fantastic because they're, they're moving or they're giving me data. So now our staff will, will convey that uh, adverse reaction kind of not joy, but the fact that if you have a reaction, it gives us data that's very important to us. So I do think if you're having adverse reactions, it might be hard to manage and sort of be happy with it, uh, you know, on your own. But as naturopaths, we take people step by step by step. So if we see a reaction, we tend to know, we tend to have a certain kind of plan on what to do. And if that reaction persists, we have another plan. If the, that reaction goes left or right, we have another plan. So we tend to take people step by step and every reaction or non-reaction would mean something different. So um, I'll take constipation because it's very common. If we, we start on something like glutathione or precursors for glutathione or herbs for glutathione and we have an adverse reaction, the first thing we would make sure is the person's not constipated because if the glutathione was doing its job, it was taking things that were a bit toxic and detoxifying them into more uh, like less harmful nutrients or, or things and then dumping them into the digestive system for elimination, but you're constipated, that's going to have an adverse reaction. So it's not going to feel good. Is it dangerous? No, you've just converted something that's a bit more harmful to something that's less harmful. So theoretically, it is not dangerous. It's a good thing, but that doesn't mean it's going to feel good in the body, or we don't have to address it. And in fact, you know, we're, we would there would be something we want to do about it. So we wouldn't just let a person go untreated. But it's very easy, you know, make sure the person is not constipated. If they are constipated, treat it. Stop the protocol for a period of time, then go back in and continue to do it, and then assess what's changed and what hasn't changed. But that happens on every system. So are the kidneys working well? Is the skin stable? Is the mood stable? Are hormones stable? So every system winds up being looked at per reaction. And a data is also when people respond. So we actually really like responses. And we sort of coach our patients through what we're expecting and some things to expect and they're okay with and some things to give us a call so we'll help them through it. I don't know if that answers your question about... Absolutely yeah. it does, yes. Um is, do detox reactions, I know they can get extreme depending on the toxic burden that somebody's carrying. Can a detox reaction ever become dangerous? Um, I mean, the more, the more complicated a case, yeah, the possibility of having someone be unwell is possible. Yes. But dangerous, uh, we've never, no, we've never had anyone sort of have to be hospitalized on a detoxification pathway but we have reactions that we're not happy pushing through. So we, we get them to stop, support their system, and then go back in or, or sometimes not go back in because the protocol is too strong for them. So we can definitely get aggressive reactions, though. Can you talk about what some of those reactions are? What are the symptoms? I, I, I realize it can probably be varying and wide, but talk about what some people feel when they are 
going through a detox reaction? Sure. Some of our standard reactions, which we would tell people, look, this is you, you probably have something in the system. We want it out of the system. The act of getting it out is work. And sometimes having a reaction is the cost of doing business. So if you're fairly healthy and you have these reactions, these are okay. And you push through. So that would be things like fatigue, brain fog, joint pain, um, uh, some mood changes, so some minor sadness or depression, not not very significant, but that sometimes means the body is busy doing work and doesn't have enough energy to sort of keep you stable because it's busy. But we do expect those short-term uh, impacts to change or go away after a couple days. Um, is there uh, a time where patients need to be sort of consoled? Like, do they start sort of freaking out and thinking, what's happening to me? Um, how, how does that play into everything? Uh, I mean, depending on how severe the case is or how complicated the case is, anytime you move something that we consider very stable or we consider very safe can cause a reaction that's going to induce panic or changes in the body that are not going to be... Uh, they're, they're going to be concerning for the patient. And so we would we would just talk them through the, the mechanisms they're doing. But oftentimes we say go back to where you, we go back to the beginning where we had them more stable and we just go slower and step by step and make sure that they, they physically are stable. We don't actually want adverse reactions. We want the system to just feel better without a lot of negative side effects. So when we do our job well, the body just feels better. If there's something in the way, we, we usually try to get rid of it. We usually try to address the side effects or address the detoxification pathways so the person doesn't actually feel that bad. And what are some of the dietary protocols that you put into place when you are detoxing a patient? Um, well, we would definitely put in more greens. So leafy green vegetables, more 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 fiber for the food, to, for the, the, the toxins to pass through the digestive system. Um, we would put in less food that is processed food, less food that's more sticky, uh, so it sticks to the digestive system and slows everything down. So we would pull out processed foods like breads or grains, some of the stickier food, and put you know very highly nutritious food in its simple form. So meat, beans, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables, eggs, those are, those are our power foods. And we push the greens when we're trying to get those detoxification pathways up. Is veganism helpful in a situation like that do, do you uh do you think animal proteins are necessary um during that detox detoxification process or what's your thought on that uh i think uh so my sonia and i have we were vegan a while ago so we were vegan like from age 15 to 25 so we spent you know our teenage and our young adulthood years being vegan and it was great it did really help our family for a period of time um but being vegan is a lot of work so I do think if you're a good vegan, it's great, uh, and it, it, there's huge health uh, benefits to being vegan. So some of our population base has chosen to be vegan because it's very nutrient-dense food, and some of our population base can't do it, won't do it. It's just not, it's not their choice. So in that case, we would just choose both vegan and meat eaters to be clean on the diet, so no less processed food, and then those are benefits. So if you're not going to be good at your diet, you're not going to, you know, lots of greens, lots of nuts and seeds, beans, and you're going to just take it from an animal source, it's easier. It's, it's, it's like, it's, you know, it, it, it works for lots of people. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not really giving you an answer just because we have, we, I don't think there is a true answer. There's more of a, a personality or a, um, 
you know, a choice to be vegan or not vegan. Um, and both have their downsides. Yeah. Is there a benefit in doing organic versus conventional? Do you see a difference in people's recoveries when they switch to an organic diet or what do you think of that? So we, so our, we see more um, change in health when they take out processed foods, which I guess includes organic, but you can have like organic chocolate pudding uh, and it's, it's technically organic, but it's got a lot of, you know, chemicals and sugar and crap in it. So uh, yeah. I, I think that buying organic meat and buying organic fruits and vegetables has huge benefit. But if you keep the crap in the diet, that's, that's where you're, we see the most benefit. So if we have people cooking actual food and less processed food, whether it's organic or not organic, we see the biggest change that way. And then, yes, we do see a little bump up when you actually, when your diet is very clean and then you push to more organic. Mm -hmm. But the biggest shift is taking the processed food out. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with you. Why do you think conventional medicine has been so slow to address toxicity issues in, in the general population? It's too big. It's so, like, I mean, toxicity is a real downer. Uh, you know, every time I talk about it and my sister's beside me, she's like, you got to lighten it up a little. Like, <laughs> it's so sad. I mean, it's so, it's yeah. so, uh, yeah, there's, there's so much research on it. It's almost overwhelming. It's, yeah. it's too big. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and the testing is fraught with error because toxicity is going to be in the, in the tissue and in the, in the, in the cells. And so it's not like my patients are not going to want to do 300 biopsies to know their full toxicity. It's just not, it's not appropriate. It's not, it's no. not feasible. So the accuracy of toxicity testing will slow down the, the ability to accurately diagnose it and treat it in, in a standard practice. Now you said that, um, you don't always do toxicity t toxin panels with your patients and I'm, I'm guessing those can get expensive, but if, uh, if money's no object, what, uh, what are the different kinds of tests that people can, can try to see what's in their bodies or what it is that's causing their symptoms and they want to know an answer? Sure. I, so I think that, I mean, it depends on the case. So sometimes the case is more infection. So you'd want to know about like the actual alive bad guys in the body. So then we would do you usually a stool test for microbes or the, a stool test for how's the digestive system functioning. There, there are heavy metal tests where we can see, are there heavy metals stuck in the system? And if there are, how do you eliminate them? Um, in Ontario, naturopaths aren't actually allowed to do a lot of toxicity testing. So some of our patients will get, uh, but uh, so a lot of the actual toxicity testing, we use um, labs from the US and they may have to get another doctor from somewhere else to actually do the test for them. But you know, so in Ontario, uh, in all states and in all provinces, naturopaths are regulated, or we, we hope to be regulated. In Ontario, we're very strictly regulated. We're actually more regulated than any naturopath in North America. So we have extreme restrictions, but we also have a very good scope of practice. I can do a lot of things that sometimes my colleagues can't do, but sometimes those limitations are kind of stop us from doing our job perfectly. So Today in Ontario, a naturopath can't do a nice toxicity uh, panel, but uh, sometimes, like we, like I was talking about before, the accuracy is sometimes not perfect either, because what goes on inside the cell is not what you can see in the blood. So there's two different um, situations happening. So even if we did all the testing, we still might not have full accuracy. So in Ontario, we sometimes do. Oh, sorry. We. That's okay. <laughs> 
we sometimes do. Sonia's texting to see how to go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We just text her to say, good, don't text anymore. Uh, (laughs) It's all good. Yeah. All right. So in Ontario, what we sometimes do is uh, we have to go on the symptom and we have to actually test by doing trial and error, which isn't perfect. But other naturopaths in other states can do the the toxicity profile panels that, yes, we were trained to do. Do you find that um, dental amalgams and, and different toxins that can sort of get into our systems that way can be a, a factor um, I know mercury is very controversial as far as the fillings are concerned. Um, any issues that you've seen with that? I think it goes into the whole persistent and non-persistent issue again. So what we've seen is the toxins that make the most difference are actually the non-persistent ones. And mercury is persistent. So mercury is toxic. We don't like it. They don't use mercury in fillings anymore. We, we do know it's not mm-hmm. great for us. But if usually we find in a case, if it, if the amalgam has been in the body for 20 to 30 years and there's no health downsides us going in and stirring it up and pulling it out again it does then free the mercury and kind of puts the person more at risk so then we'd go back and say do you have enough glutathione to clear it do you have enough chelators to pull the mercury out are your detoxification pathways stable all the pieces that mercury would have to go from in the bone and the tissue out of the system it's like a prisoner transport you know prisoners are dangerous They have to be transported safely, and if they're not transported safely, they can cause a little bit of harm. So with with dental amalgams, we just make sure that if, if it's appropriate, we have the right guards in play to make sure the system is safe when we, when we do detoxify. But it's not the first thing we think about in a case. We tend to think about the, the chemicals that come into the, the body on a daily basis because those are the ones that actually cause more harm. Is city water a factor? I know, uh, you know, fluoridation is something that seems prevalent and there's there's different functional medical doctors um, out there that are, are sort of, you know, warning people about the effects of that. Um, do you think that has anything to do with what people are dealing with on a chronic level today? I think there's a lot of different factors. So I think fluoride might be one of them for sure. But I do think we're exposed to lots and lots and lots of toxins. So again, like fluoride would be in sort of a, it's still in the elemental category, so it'd still be considered persistent. So when it, it's like chlorine, it's in the same category as chlorine. So we know chlorine's a toxin. Fluoride is designed to kill things, is to, to kill the, the bugs in our in our body to make sure that the drinking water is clean. So if the drinking water isn't clean, we got a problem. If the thing you put in the drinking water to make it clean is toxic, then we got a problem. So, but it is one thing, sure, it's one thing that the people are exposed to. It, it might be too, it, so I do think that it's more like the straw that broke the camel's back, which means that there are things you probably have access to um, that, that could play a part that is either just as, just as significant or even more significant than fluoride. So I don't think just pulling fluoride out of the water is going to kind of fix the whole population base. There's a, lot, there's a lot more out there than just kind of individual kind of bad guys. And so what do we do about things that are everywhere, like air pollution, especially people in highly urbanized areas? I mean, that's not so, we can't all just pick up and move to the country and, and be away from uh, the dense populous areas where a lot of us live and work and are, are, have our roots. Um, how do we overcome pollutants that way? 
Yeah, I I do think, yeah, the, the more, I mean, I live in the city and, you know, it, it is definitely, I think, I think air pollution is definitely a big deal in my area. So uh, when we have sick population that, that are, they're really exposed, everything, every exposure does, does tend to hurt them. Um, and they're responsive to detoxification pathway protocols. Like if you get stuff out of their body, they feel better. So this is helpful. Then we tell them that sometimes you, you know, if you put air filters in your physical home to make sure you can clean that inside home, the, the, the air you have control over, that can be sort of what you have access to. So you may not have access to industries to tell them to not pollute anymore, but you do have access where you sleep at night you have access to and where you spend a lot of your time work or home is what you have, what you have control over so there are things you can do you know filter water filters or air filters that do make a big impact on cleaning air yes so tell me about hormones um i know that toxic burden can affect hormone production and and sort of homeostasis how does that play into that whole paradigm sure so hormones are, um, I love hormones. I love and hate hormones because they're so, they're so big in our world, obviously, uh, you know, after, after puberty, but hormones are, they come from the core cholesterol. So we always think of cholesterol as a bad thing, you know, men who have high cholesterol, women too, but you know, we always worry about cardiovascular issues and clogging up the arteries. So that's kind of how cholesterol is thought of, but Cholesterol makes your estrogen, it makes your testosterone, it makes your hormones, it makes skin skin cells and your, your membranes and your cell that make you nice and strong. It also makes vitamin D. So when we're looking at um, the liver and detoxification pathways and toxicity, we have to kind of understand that cholesterol makes hormones and cholesterol converts into hormones in the liver. So your ability for the liver to do its job is based on the, the ebb and flow of its, of, of its function. So if you can't convert your cholesterol into your estrogen, and then you can't convert your estrogen out of the body, so you know women, men, we make hormones and we get rid of them, and then we make them again and we get rid of them. So if you can't make enough hormones or you can't get rid of hormones, they store in your tissue and they convert into inflammatory hormones, which are not good. So the liver is part of that piece. We know that your cholesterol converts into hormones and then keeps going through, but the rate limiting step is sometimes what we're looking at. So if toxins are blocking your ability to make your hormones happen or get your hormones out of the system, then a lot of times we take a case based on hormones. What is your, for a woman, what's your period like? What does it look like? What is it, how many days? What's your pain level like? A lot of those are liver or toxicity symptoms that we're actually asking about. And when we put in phase one or phase two detoxification pathways, we're expecting changes in the hormones. Are you making better hormones? And then is there a better outcome? So we use a, a person's hormone uh, background when we look at toxicity pictures. And, and it, it's great because it, it's it's month-to-month information for women specifically, but also for men that, that does have an impact. And so if we target toxicity and we see changes in hormones, we know the toxins were stuck and not allowing the hormones to do their job or, or get stuck and convert them into more inflammatory hormones, which is not safe. So we, we do look at hormones as a toxicity uh, symptom. And what, how do hormones, we always hear about hormones in, in women, how do hormones affect men in this, in this sort of scope of toxicity burden? Sure. I mean, the, the pathway, I mean, I'm obsessed with pathways. I'm not sure it's boring. But <laughs> I was talking about this, like, oh, it's bad. It's terrible. But I mean, we do hormones, your cholesterol converts into your hormones and 
men make testosterone and women will convert the testosterone to estrogen. It's just men will keep their testosterone in a higher amount than women, obviously, and women keep their estrogen in a higher amount. But in a, in a lot of ways, the mechanism is the same. You make your hormones and then you get rid of them. And for men specifically, if they can't get rid of their hormones, they're going to convert their hormones like testosterone. For example, one of the bad pathways is called dihydrotestosterone or inflammatory testosterone. So if men are not getting rid of their testosterone, it's going to convert to inflammatory, tes inflammatory testosterone and put their bodies at risk. So if we put nutrients in or take out toxicity, that will take that crappy inflammatory testosterone, convert it back to regular testosterone, and then you can get it back down to cut it up and clear it out of the body. It's safer. And what what converts what ultimately converts those inflammatory hormones back into usable hormones? Is it the liver? The liver. Yeah, the liver makes metabolizes cholesterol into hormones like testosterone, and then detoxifies it into the safer hormones and their individual metabolites to get rid of the body. So the liver makes and metabolizes hormones. So it's a big deal with hormone with hormone cases. So although liver function is hard to track, hormones are not. So if we do a detoxification pathway, we can see the hormone balance off at the beginning, and then we do the hormone balance again, and it's more stable, and the person has more stable symptoms, and all we've done is detoxification work, then we know that probably we're pulling out toxins and balancing the hormone production and detoxification, which is daily. Right. Yeah. Um, does vitamin D play a role in all this? Vitamin D status? Mm -hmm. So we look at, we kind of look at hormones like a teeter-totter. So we know that the cholesterol is in front and then it, and then it, it converts into mo multiple different hormones. So when we're looking at hormone status, we look at a picture of hormones and see what's, what's, you know, tipping one way or the other. And vitamin D is a, is made from cholesterol. So it's a part of this picture. If the body, if cholesterol levels are good and vitamin D levels are bad and and testosterone levels are low and dihydro or inflammatory testosterone is high, you can see there's a there's a picture happening. It's going kind of in a bad direction. So if that's our baseline, we do a detoxification protocol, we aim for making the liver work more efficiently, then you do hormone testing afterwards and everything else is balanced. You know that you're you're metabolizing and making things better and more efficient. So mm -hmm. we do vitamin D testing as a way of looking at the, looking at the the flow of hormones. And I I know this is not um, possible in every latitude where people live, but is there a difference between uh, getting vitamin D from the sun versus supplementation? That's a bit of a controversial subject. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, vitamin D is activated by UV light. So it, it is. I mean, we, I don't get out. I'm a city naturopath, not a country naturopath. So well, yeah. in Canada, it's cold. Sometimes I don't get out as much. Uh, I like to ski. So we are getting out more to ski. But yeah, there are health benefits to getting the vitamin D in food and activating it in sunlight. So the, the, the populations that do get more sun have better vitamin D function for sure. Yeah. And supplementation doesn't activate it as well. It will move the system. It will, you'll be able to see vitamin D levels increase in uh, lab work, but full vitamin D activation happens with UV light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we, we still need to get outside the, the city, the city folks still have to get outside. Right. Yeah. Definitely. What foods are best for getting vitamin D? 
uh, usually foods that have flesh in them. So fish and meat would have actually, because your vitamin D, although it comes from the sun, is activated kind of in your tissue. So if you're eating someone else's tissue, then then that works. There are some uh, vegetables and fruits. I think almonds, I can't remember all the foods, sorry. But I mean, I do think nuts and seeds will have the cofactors for vitamin D. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe why vegetarians or vegans, it's more important for those folks to get outside because they have to activate it. Whereas meat eaters just eat the activated vitamin D already. It's a lazy way of doing it, yeah. but yeah. it does work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Dr. Carissa, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, unfortunately, we're we're running low on time, but this has been a, a fascinating discussion. And um, I, is there is there how can people find you? Do you take out of town patients? We we do. So we do can, we do consultations. That's why the life has changed for since COVID. We're now on on yeah. the phone now, so less in house, less inpatient. Um, you can contact at info at naturalcareclinic.ca, uh, and that's yeah, that's where I am. Okay, great. Uh, I hope you'll have. Uh, I, I hope you'll join us again. Um, this was a lot of fun, and I, we haven't even scratched the surface on some of the areas of your practice. So um, it'd be great to have you back. That sounds great. Thank you, Mike. It was really fun. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of the Natural Man Podcast. Remember to subscribe and check out previous episodes of different podcasts that we have going. And we're also on Instagram at Natural Man Podcast. So uh, check in with us on there and see what we're up to. Um, This is all we've got for today, but we'll be back for another episode. Thanks for joining us. My name is Mike C. Stay healthy. This has been the Natural Man Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.